0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 2nd. In today's news, Florida finally issues a stay-at-home order as new data proves social distancing works. Republicans are using the coronavirus crisis as cover to restrict women's reproductive rights. And some people who cannot get tests are dying of COVID-19 after being misdiagnosed. But first, the big idea. The federal government's emergency stockpile of respirator masks, gloves, and other medical supplies is running low and nearly exhausted due to the coronavirus outbreak, leaving the Trump administration and the states to compete for personal protective equipment, known as PPE, in a freewheeling global marketplace rife with profiteering and price gouging. This is according to several officials at the Department of Homeland Security who are involved in what's become a frantic acquisition effort. As coronavirus hotspots flare from coast to coast, the demand for safety equipment is both immediate and widespread, with health officials, hospital executives, and governors saying that their shortages are critical, and that healthcare workers are putting their lives at risk while trying to help the surging number of patients. Two DHS officials say the stores kept in the strategic national stockpile maintained by the Department of Health and Human Services are nearly gone. Trump confirmed this last night during his daily briefing at the White House. The president also said he is looking at potential flight restrictions between hot spots domestically in the United States. But he said it's difficult to entirely suspend air travel or shut down transportation networks. He also said he's looking at shutting down rail travel. The Pentagon announced overnight that it is mobilizing to provide as many as 100,000 body bags to FEMA for use by civilian authorities. Meanwhile, at the White House, Trump's advisors are debating where to send new rapid response tests From Abbott Labs. Some White House officials want to ship many of the tests, which were approved Friday and can deliver results in 5 to 13 minutes, to areas where there are fewer cases, such as rural states and parts of the South. But officials in hard hit areas and most public health experts favor directing them to the outbreak's current hotspots, arguing that delays in test readings have sidelined many first responders and healthcare workers and made it harder to isolate the most contagious patients. During a Tuesday meeting of the White House Coronavirus Task Force in the Situation Room, we hear it got a little heated. Vice President Pence and other officials discussed diverting new tests to areas where there are relatively few cases. Someone who was in the room told us that they're trying to figure out the spread in places where they don't quite understand it now. The final consensus apparently seemed to be to send the tests to the South and low-density areas. The lag in delivering test results is taking a real toll on communities across our country, rural and urban, depriving them of workers who can respond to medical emergencies and sowing uncertainty among hospital officials deciding what precautions to take. The competition for test machines is so intense, so intense that governors and mayors have begun personally calling Abbott executives to negotiate orders. In fact, in beleaguered Detroit, which has one of the nation's highest rates of infection right now and one of the fastest rising death tolls. Mayor Mike Duggan said yesterday that he secured the cell phone number of Miles White, the chairman and outgoing CEO of Abbott Labs, and he called and woke him up in the middle of the night on Sunday to beg for Detroit to get some of the tests. He told us that his groveling got his city 5,000 of the testing devices. A lot of police officers in Detroit have begun staying overnight atop the shuttered Greek town hotel in that city's casino district because they don't want to infect their own families. 525 cops in Detroit's 2,500 member force are quarantined. 91 have tested positive, and that number is expected to spike as more tests are conducted. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan said in an interview that his state needs at least 100,000 more tests than it has right now. In Kentucky, Governor Andy Bashir has delayed launching mobile testing sites, partly because he doesn't yet have an adequate supply of tests and personal protective equipment. Public health experts say testing really is needed everywhere, as much as several hundred thousand a day. But Harlan Krumholtz, a cardiologist at Yale Medical School, says the hot zones need the most. Trump, for his part, continues to repeatedly assure Americans, including again last night, that the federal government is holding on to 10,000 ventilators in reserve and is ready to ship them to the hardest-hit hospitals around the nation as they struggle to keep up with an influx of critically ill patients. But what he neglects to mention is that an additional 2,100 of the life-saving devices are unavailable because the contract to maintain the government's stockpile lapsed last summer. And a contracting dispute meant that a new firm didn't begin work on fixing those ventilators until late January. And as it turns out, it was Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, who encouraged Trump to push back last week against Andrew Cuomo when the New York governor said his state needed 30,000 ventilators. Kushner told Trump that Cuomo was being alarmist. It turns out Cuomo underestimated his need and how dire the situation would become. New York's case total has now surpassed 75,000 and continues to spike. Now, New York is running out of time, quickly approaching an expected apex of cases. Exactly when that peak will arrive is the $64,000 question, as Cuomo put it yesterday during his daily briefing. He says the range of available models suggests that New York has 7 to 21 days to prepare for the worst. Because the federal government is not delivering, Cuomo says he's looking as far away as China to locate new ventilators. He's even trying to buy 17,000 of them from Wuhan. And the Regional Emergency Medical Services Council of New York, which oversees the city's ambulance service, issued new guidance last night that stops paramedics from taking cardiac arrest victims to the hospital if their hearts cannot be restarted at the scene. This is one in a series of wrenching, rationing decisions being made in the Big Apple. Back here in Washington, Tony Fauci, now has a security detail. The nation's top infectious disease expert, who's 79 years old, has faced growing death threats. What kind of a sick person would threaten the life of the guy who's trying to save their lives? Well, he's become a public target for a lot of right-wing commentators. Last month, an article depicting him as an agent of the deep state gained nearly 25,000 interactions on Facebook, meaning likes, comments, and shares, and it was posted to several large pro Trump groups. A Justice Department official has signed paperwork authorizing HHS to provide security protection for Fauci. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one Social distancing works, and the earlier, the better. That's the takeaway from preliminary data from two weeks of stay at home orders in California and Washington. Those states were the first to report community spread of COVID 19, and they were also the first to mandate residents stay home to keep physically apart. New analysis from academics, as well as federal and local public health officials, shows that these moves bought the community's precious time and may have helped flatten the curve of infections over the long haul. California and Washington continue to see new cases and deaths. It's terrible. But so far, they haven't come anywhere close to the spikes seen in parts of the East Coast. Experts agree that social distancing efforts need to continue for several more weeks to be effective. It's now been 17 days since counties in the San Francisco Bay Area told some 6 million residents to stay home, and 13 days since the order was extended to all of California. The number of confirmed infections per capita in New York City is 15 times that of the Bay Area, and that's partly because New York State didn't order people to stay home until 11 days ago. Compared with the Boston area, which has a more similar population density, the Bay Area in California has about a third of the cases per capita. And that's partly because the state of Massachusetts didn't order people to stay home until eight days ago. California hospitals, which saw their number of patients with COVID 19 double over the last five days, have yet to buckle under the load. And academic models of the spread indicate that the Golden State's steps have reduced the projected death toll in California from 6,100 to 5,100. In other words, because of the state's early move, at least 1,000 lives have been saved. And in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has finally issued a stay-at-home order. His order requires that state's 21 million residents to stay indoors unless they're pursuing essential services or activities. The Republican has taken heavy criticism from state lawmakers, including in his own party, for refusing to enact such an order until yesterday, even as the number of confirmed cases surpassed 7,000 in the Sunshine State, including more than 100 deaths. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp who for weeks said his state's outbreak didn't warrant extreme social distancing measures, has also changed course. He will issue an order later today requiring Georgians to stay in their homes for all but essential outings. Georgia and Louisiana now have the six counties with the highest number of virus deaths in the country per capita. The number of reported cases across Louisiana rose to more than 6,400 yesterday with 273 total deaths, New Orleans alone has about 2,300 cases and more than 115 deaths, and Louisiana Governor John Bel Edwards says his state is on a path to run out of ventilators on April 6th. Number two, a growing number of red states are seeking to ban abortion during the current public health emergency by classifying it as an unnecessary medical procedure. This has sparked more than a dozen contentious legal battles nationwide. A federal appeals court ruled this week that Texas, one of the first states to enact such a ban, can temporarily prohibit abortions from taking place. In Ohio, though, a federal judge sided with Planned Parenthood in its suit against the state, which was the first to bar abortions by classifying them as unnecessary medical procedures. That judge ordered the ban to be lifted. A district court judge in Alabama has suspended that state's ban until oral arguments can be heard from both sides next week and lawsuits are pending in Iowa and Oklahoma. Number three. This contagion continues to kill people of all ages. A six-week-old baby from Hartford, Connecticut became one of the youngest-known people to die from the disease yesterday. Riley Rumrell, 31 of Boston, who had asthma but was described by his family as healthy and sturdy, became the youngest resident of Massachusetts to die from the virus. Adam Schlesinger, the prolific singer songwriter and co founder of the rock band Fountains of Wayne, died at 52. He's been on a ventilator for the last week in New York. He wrote the song That Thing You Do for that Tom Hanks movie in the 90s and the tongue in cheek song Stacy's Mom in 2003. Kevin Thomas Duffy, the federal judge who presided over decades of high-profile trials in Manhattan, including the World Trade Center bombing trial, died of COVID-19 at 87. Ellis Marsalis, a New Orleans jazz piano legend and the patriarch of one of that city's great musical families, died at 85. But I want to tell you about someone you've probably not heard of. Sterling Matthews, who lived just outside of Richmond, Virginia, Went to the hospital on March 23rd, 10 days ago now, seeking to be tested for the coronavirus because he had all the symptoms. But he was told that he had pneumonia and he was sent home. But his health kept deteriorating, so he went back to the hospital where he tested positive. Now he's dead. He was 60. We're hearing a lot, a lot anecdotally about these kind of misdiagnoses happening it's problematic because people who are misdiagnosed can continue to spread the contagion and not get some of the treatment they might need. We talked with Sterling's widow, Alice Matthews, yesterday. The two of them were already busy raising their young son when they decided to take in a baby niece whose own parents weren't able to care for her. He just brought her on in, no fuss, Alice recalled. He was just that kind of a man. When he saw a need, he filled it. Alice and her other family members were not allowed to visit her dying husband in the hospital. She had to say goodbye over the telephone. Now she's grieving in physical isolation, given her own exposure to the virus. Alice and Sterling were high school sweethearts. They'd been making plans to celebrate their 40th anniversary in June, and they both planned to retire in two years. She's an administrative assistant for a local school system. A veteran of both the U.S. Air Force and the Army, Sterling was working in support services at Fort Belvoir, an army installation in Fairfax County when he got ill. He was relatively healthy after beating prostate cancer a few years back. He was a deacon at Moore Street Missionary Baptist Church, and he taught Sunday school. He also mentored at-risk boys, including taking inner-city boys to etiquette classes. He would teach them where to put the napkin, which fork to use, which glass to use, stuff like that, his wife recalled. She said she says that he thought it was important for these young boys to become men. Jamal Matthews says his father always gave 100% to anyone who needed his help. He took an interest in people, Jamal remembered. And he always used to say, quote, "'You just can't throw people away.'" He always thought there was something redeeming about the human spirit, and he believed that encouragement in a positive way for those who had been left behind brought out the best in people. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 2nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.